I'm mischievous Mark Giannacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, Amazing Fantasy number 15, and all of the annuals, which I say do not count. And I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which I say count. But for me, Amazing Fantasy 15 remains a fantasy. Welcome to the Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thanks for joining us for this special Amazing Friends episode of the Amazing Spider-Talk. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and 2099 future, subscribe to Amazing Spider-Talk on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review to help spread the word about our show. Yeah, this podcast exists because of the support of our Patreon members. If you want to receive early episodes, exclusive artwork, and keep our podcast going until 2099, God help us, go to AmazingSpiderTalk.com and consider joining our Patreon. Today on the show, we are fortunate to be joined by writer Steve Orlando, whose work has taken over and reestablished the 2099 line of comics. First starting with Spider-Man 2099 Exodus and continuing through Spider-Man 2099 Dark Genesis. And now, of course, Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man 2099. Steve has also written the celebrated titles of Marauders, Scarlet Witch, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, Astonishing Iceman, and even on Amazing Spider-Man Curse of the Man-Thing. Uh, not giant size man thing though. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah, just the curse of the he, the curse of the man thing might be to have a giant size man thing, but we'll leave that for other scholars. Uh, man, Mark, I have been loving Orlando's work on the twenty ninety nine series. I, I read that Spider Man twenty ninety nine Exodus, and his voice on this time era just just stood out immediately as a guy that like really launched into like sci-fi writing. Um, I I'm a big fan of sci sci-fi fiction, uh, sci-fi fiction. That's like saying ATM machine, his, his dialogue and world building just is so unique and really reinvigorated the 2099 line for me, especially after that weird false restart that we had a few years back. I know I've been gushing about him on the sub stack and I'm excited for a potential you know, for more for him. So I can't wait to talk to him on the show. Awesome. Well, we are definitely looking forward to it. So why don't we just jump right into it, Dan, and introduce Steve Orlando. Well, now let's meet one of our amazing spider friends, the kind of guy I go to other friends who recommend. Find out about the things they created. You'll love them so much that you wish you dated. But you're just friends. They're an amazing friend. A friend, a friend, a friend. They're an amazing friend. All right. We are joined here by Steve Orlando. Steve, we, we, we introduced you in our in our intro as we should. So we're just going to get right into the questions here. We, 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 we always kind of kick off interviews with our creators by asking them what's what's their origin story as it relates to comics and their fandom with comics. And, you know, since we are the amazing spider talk, we always want to know at what point does Spider-Man intersect with that origin story, if at all? If you're talking about fandom and me and me reading comics, especially, I, you know, as I was telling you guys before we hopped onto the recording, I'm from central New York originally. We didn't have, I'm not from, I live, I grew up in Syracuse. Uh, we didn't have like a comic store on my side of town. You know, there was one in the city, but there, there wasn't one on my side of town for the longest time. So actually the first comic I ever bought, God knows why I remember this, even in my advanced age, but it was West Coast Avengers 16, uh, A Tale of Two Kitties. 
I tell people I bought that in 1987, but I can cheat and look when it actually came out. Point is, is that it's early on for me, but it wasn't at a comic store. It was at a flea market because uh, my father was, uh, he, he used to run a sports memorabilia show. So I, and I did not really care about sports. So when we went to flea markets and things like that, I would always be looking for non-sports cards or of course, comic book type stuff, action figures too. So I picked that up. Now the internet tells me, whoa, that this was released actually in September of 1986. But this book was almost definitely bought by me in 1987. And by by me, I mean my parents because I was two years old. <laughs> so, uh, so I read that and, and that was kind of what it was until the early 90s when we uh, finally got... Well, actually, not even a comic book store. We got a Walden Books at my local at my local uh, enclosed mall. I started buying stuff off the spinner rack. So that's when Spider-Man comes into play. I'm sure that I bought books with Spider-Man in them in the 80s. But like, the first thing I remember, and actually the first comics I was buying close as possible to day and date, it was still off a spinner rack at a bookstore, not a comic store, was God Love Me. Would have had to been like Clone Saga type stuff. <laughs> You know, I was big into I was big into all of the 2099 books, which is convenient for me working on them now. But that was like 1992, like Spider-Man and the X-Men were already the coolest shit. And like 2099 coming out, it was like, wow, this is like cool shit made specifically for me that I can get into the ground floor of. So but no, it was like the first things I remember buying like off the racks specifically were Ben Riley. Actually, Ben Riley was the Scarlet Spider. I don't I don't know the issue number off the top of my head, but it's the issue where he I believe it's Web of Spider-Man. Uh, he fights Venom and he separates Venom from Eddie using impact webbing, which he had created. So I was pretty much ground floor with Ben Riley. My entry point into Marvel was the Clone Saga and my entry point into DC, again, as a day and date reader, was Electric Blue Superman. <laughs> so it is actually kind of shocking in some ways how deep my love for, for the form is because both of those things are things I think were awesome, but it, let's at least say that they have a level of infamy <laughs> amongst amongst the reading populace. So Clone Saga was the, the thing for me. And, and I also, you know what, I remember now that I'm talking about it, before Electric Blue Superman, my father did bring home from a show one of the Death of Superman comics. So, and again, like, kind of similar eras like you know it's always funny to me when marvel and dc sort of orbit each other you know batman dying and kind of coming back in the same way that captain america did so on and so forth this would be later this would be in the whenever he whenever they died final crisis mid 2000s but the point is both times when i got into both companies were times when the main person was not the star like and, and i was a young and foolish right so i was like ben riley's always gonna be <laughs> spider-man I gotta, you know and similarly, I was like, which of these people are going to be the real Superman? Now, I will tell you that uh, I had like an eight-year-old rationale for why it was definitely the Eradicator. Um, and, and that rationale was, folks who read my books now will know that my plotting has not advanced much past this. Uh, my rationale was uh, that to come back to life, Superman had to fly really close to the sun. And thus, he would have needed those goggles, those, that visor that the Eradicator has. So that was my hard proof that he was definitely the real Superman. And, you know, history proved me right. So that's great. Now, did your dad put you through college uh, by selling the death of Superman issue? I mean, clearly. I mean, <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't the issue. It was I think it was the one that came in like the, the black poly bag where he because the thing is, like in, when you open the issue, it's the one where Jonathan has a heart attack and he like a near-death experience and he goes and he like sees Clark in the end, the Kryptonian afterlife. So it wasn't like the issue where he dies. It was just part of that saga. And, and all of my jumping on points throughout life have often been what many people refer to as jumping off points. And by the way, I still love the Scarlet Spider original costume. As a matter of fact, one of my things I wear to the gym is a homemade version of that. Uh, I, and it's really easy to make because you just buy a normal blue Spider-Man sweatshirt and you cut the sleeves off. <laughs> Coolest person at the gym. Yeah, I mean, I. Uh, well, you know, I'm not a virgin, so I'm doing all right. Like, <laughs> but, but sometimes that shocks even me. Uh, let me tell you. Um, you said uh, 2099 was the coolest shit made just for you. Can you tell me about that? Like, uh, you know, what is it about 2099 that spoke to you early on? Well, I mean, I was seven years old in 1992, and so like, there's there's a there's an element of like KEWL cool that is very affecting to oh, yeah. to, to young folks, yeah. you know. 
And and it helps that the books were way ahead of their time. Like for the most part, when I go back and read uh, X Men twenty ninety nine, you know the folks working on that, Ron Lim and John Francis Moore. And I was thinking, I you know I was thinking of three name, three 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 word name, but I was thinking Bill Messner Loeb's, but it's John Francis Moore. Anyway, like like way ahead of their time, the stuff that they were doing there is stuff that Grant would be picking up on in ten years in New X Men, and the same goes for Peter and Rick on Spider Man twenty ninety nine. Well, as we get closer to 2099 in the real world, I think the main Spider-Man book uh, on and off resembles Spider-Man 2099 more and more. That's not to say that they're the same character. They're absolutely not. They're very different. But, you know, Peter, you know, for how many years did he have like a high tech job, you know, with, you know, with uh, whatever it was called, Parker. Horizon Labs and stuff. Yeah. 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 You know, like he like the, the so I think so much of that stuff is ahead of its time. And there is just a little bit of lightning in the bottle there, too, because you can't really quantify cool, like C-O-O-L, cool. But it's just there, right? Like like Miguel, the minute you see him, like that that original Day of the Dead costume is, it's just a banger, you know? Like it is, it, it looks intrinsically cool. It looks cool in the world that Rick and Peter built for so many, so many issues. It's one of the reasons when we did Exodus a couple of years ago for the 30th anniversary, we're like, he's going back in the in the in the blue and red, definitely. Not that there's anything wrong with the Will Sliney costume. As a matter of fact, as you saw, we brought that back for Flipside, but we had to go back to the classic. For me, like, so when I say for me, I just mean, in some ways, I just mean that, like, it's rare, especially in the 90s and 80s. Now it's very easy to buy a number one of a character because every character has 30 of them. But... Back then, you know, that was relatively rare. You, I was reading Spider-Man, but when I was reading like Web of Spider-Man or whatever, it wasn't issue one. But like I, this was like me, it felt auspicious. You know, I get to buy this number one. I get to be with this person day and date. And I think that that, especially when you're young, that's exciting. You know, it's, uh, and I still, you know, like the reason I put Cassandra Nova, one of many reasons in Marauders is because there's obviously a th- many, many great X-Men villains. But she was one where I was there for the first appearance. Like when I came back to X-Men after years away, it was for Grant and Frank Whiteley. And there she was in the first issue. So I think that, you know, those things sort of imprint on you, kind of like a baby velociraptor, you know, and you just uh, you want to follow those characters. So and that's what it was for me. And the marketing for 2099 worked on me, too, not just for Spider-Man and not just for X-Men, but like Ravage, a brand new character created by Stan Lee. Like I was like, holy shit. You know, like, look at all these other ones he made that were so successful. This is going to be the same yeah. thing. Now, obviously, it was not, but, you know, just like Ben Riley's not Spider-Man at the moment. But, yeah, there's just there's a, there's an excitement to all that stuff. Uh, and, I, and I was certainly right in the strike zone uh, for it. That's awesome. So, so we're 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 gonna we're gonna jump ahead to you, the, your your professional career here. So, obviously, when you when you were at DC, you launched Midnighter, and then you went on to work with other very popular characters like Batman, Justice League, Wonder Woman. Uh, can you talk a little bit about like the transitioning from DC to Marvel? What that change has been like for you? How it was like working with those legacy characters versus the characters you've been working with with Marvel now? I mean, is there a difference in approach, different in style? Like what's what's like your, your overall impressions of the two companies and how you've kind of gone back and forth? Well, this the tone is different. Like like it's it, there, there are people who say that there'll be like Marvel style writing and DC style writing, but I don't necessarily agree with that uh, to an extent because like there can be a tonal difference. And I think there is, you know, like, like how many times do, do you have assholes like me on a podcast and they say, Marvel's the world outside your window and DC is the world as it, you know, like DC is the world as we, you know what a lot of creators say, not the world outside your window thing. They say DC is the world as we wish it was and Marvel's the world as it is. There's always a tonal difference there. Marvel characters tend to be slightly more grounded and the perspective has always been a little more humanistic. I think that speaks to when the vast majority of the line was created, which was, of course, in the 60s versus the 30s. Uh, not all of them, obviously. Uh, thank you, Human Torch, for killing Hitler. Most of them. So there is a tonal and a lens and a perspective difference. But I think if you try to subscribe to an actual like practical delivery difference too much, like, like if there's a Marvel way of writing something and a DC way of writing something, the thing that's getting lost there is your way of writing something. So for me, it's more, you know, the types of characters are different. Yes. Like, like, you know, when justice league came back to prominence in 1997, it was all about Grant and Howard doing the Greek pantheon. And for better or worse, that's not the Avengers. Like that's just not the, the four, that's just not the template. 
you know, but that's how it was. That's how it's kind of always been for Marvel outside of obviously people like Thor and Sentry. These are heroes that would save the day, but then you also might be able to see them getting a latte, right? Because they are like, they're, they are just like you with something more. So I think that's important to keep in mind, of course, you know, sort of what the core in the same way that when you work on a character, our job first beyond anything else is to figure out what is the core of that character. Kelly Sue DeConnick calls it the core wound. I'm not cool enough to say that, <laughs> but I do But I do think you need to find out like what a character is about. And it's not even that there's a right answer, but you need to decide for yourself, right? But I think secondary to that as well when you're working in a shared universe is finding out what the thesis and what the world itself is about. So those things might be different with Marvel and DC, but on a day-to-day level, like we're still here to offer what we bring to the table to these characters. So you think about that, you remember the sort of like sky high pitch for the universe, but also like you got to deliver things that only you can deliver or before you know it, someone else will be delivering them. I don't know why I'm being uh, so coy with my phrasing today, but here we are. <laughs> Fair it's enough. like a little Dr. Seussian. It's like if Dr. Seuss like was just like a little bit white trash, <laughs> That's kind of. <laughs> I, I, I am. I am here for all of this right now. Ke- Kelly Sue is cool, and you're coy. That, that's what we're taking away. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Core wound versus coy wound. Mine there is like it's a, it's a it's a thumbnail, but it really pisses you off. <laughs> uh, or rather, a hangnail. A hangnail. Pardon me. Can you talk to us about your involvement with the uh, Marvel Pride anthology and overall what what it's meant to you to bring uh, LGBTQT plus representation to mainstream superhero comics? So, so it's I'd be quite honest. You know, the first time I went to a comic con and started trying to get work was in 1997. I was 12 years old, and if you asked me then that it would even be possible now, I probably would not have thought so. So there is there there is a little uh, there is a little bit of uh, awe to that, you know, like I, I always perhaps naively, I always kind of thought that I would get into comics because I couldn't think about doing anything else. I mean, I had a shoot job for 10 years before I was making a living in comics, but I never stopped. I mean, I I must have quit a hundred thousand times, right? Like many people, but I still stayed in. So I knew I mean, if, if I didn't think it was going to happen at some point, I probably probably never would have happened. But I didn't necessarily think I'd have the privilege of telling stories uh, about folks like myself by any number of vectors. It's a privilege, you know, like, and it's an honor and all those sort of trite things to say, but it's also true, you know, because instead of when I was younger, uh, having to sort of scrounge around for, 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 for stories about that said that folks like me could be heroes, folks like me could be champions, now, you know, there's there, there's readers that don't need to do that, you know, and, and, and that's a process. I was a big fan of The Authority. Uh, of course I was, because a character like Midnighter, albeit me not being a mass murderer, talked and acted more like me than the type of representation that we got at the time, which was largely limited to like Will and Grace. And there's nothing wrong with that show, by the way, but it just was not for me. I didn't see myself in those characters. So it's all those things. Uh, but the real thing is, that, you know, this year it'll be 10 years that I've been full time in comics. And it's it's great to be able to tell those stories. It's great to not only be able to tell those stories as well. Um, and the real privilege of having done it for a decade is that I can... I've been able to tell a lot of different kinds, right? Like, I, I'm really happy you asked what the Marvel Pride anthology was like working on because it was not the first time I got to work on something like that. It wasn't even the 10th time I'd got to work on something like that. But to me, that's actually the point, that we get to keep telling these stories and that we get to tell more kinds of them, right? Like, there's no... For a long time, the only kind of story we got is, hey, you get your head caved in at the end, right? Like, we all saw Brokeback Mountain, and I was like, sweet, what a life. And then, and even things like, I can't even remember his name, but like for the, one of the, when Judd Winnick was on Green Lantern, there was this big thing because Kyle's friend Terry was gay, which is great, except Kyle's friend Terry is gay so they didn't get the shit kicked out of him and Kyle can be big mad about it. And, you know, that does happen, of course, but that shouldn't be the only story we get. So the real thing, like by the time we got to Marvel Pride, it had been many, many Pride anthologies, many stories featuring queer characters and... It actually is really nice to be able to tell sort of nuanced stories that engage with different aspects of the culture. I mean, Somnus is not like me in any way, other than the fact that he's Italian. You know, Somnus was created to to 
take advantage of the wish fulfillment that the Krakowin era offered characters in story. You know, we, we knew we knew the mutants could be resurrected and we knew that death wasn't permanent for them anymore. And that's great for all of the X-Men that had been like like conveniently hot mutants their whole lives like Cyclops. But I wanted to take this time, and what we did with Somnus is talk about mutant elders, and, and by proxy talk about queer elders, right? And, and I think about, it's probably my favorite Pride Anthology story I've done, and by, it's by no means the only one. But it's my favorite because it's not just about like, oh, here is a character that's gay and that's okay. It's, a, it, it's about much more than that. And it's a way for me to do, you know, tell stories that pay homage and, and honor the people around me that inspire me. You know, the, the Somnus came about because sitting on the porch of one of my neighbors who is elderly, I, wa- I sit there and wondering what it must be like for him in his 70s to sit and look at me and my fiance living a life that I'm sure he never thought he would be able to, you know, like, I mean, this is a man who couldn't look at my dog because his first, his first long-term partner would raise corgis and he died of AIDS and they, you know, and it was so early in the era for folks who don't know that might be listening that we, the world didn't know what it was. So here's a man who died and, and, my neighbor had to cart essentially his dead lover's body around because they couldn't even find a crematorium that would take it. You know, this is just horrific trauma. And to think about what could I do? Like if, if this were Krakoa, if this were Marvel, like he's a person that deserves a second chance. He deserves a person that enjoys to live in the utopia that he sacrificed for. And so that's how Somnus came about. I can't do that for my neighbor, but in Krakoa, Akihiro can, uh, and and he can do that for someone. So it, it's 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 always an honor to be invited to these anthologies. But I'm happy you asked about the Marvel one because it actually is my favorite one that I've done because it allowed me to talk about a lot more than just oh this character is gay isn't that great or oh this is about straight washing let's punch it in the face you know um, if if I if I were to go on a desert island with with only one of these stories at least now it would be my Marvel Pride story did you uh, did you share that story with your neighbor uh, <laughs> well I did but it's worth noting that it's shocking or not to folks who listen to this podcast and read comics what we think is normal and what is actually normal yeah. so I did share it with him I think I got to explaining that Krakow and mutants come out of eggs now yeah. and he was kind of like <laughs> really I'm out <laughs> I still don't think that's normal, but I'm enjoying it. Uh, Fair enough. So Mark gets the really like, uh, like nice questions. And I'm, I'm going to get into 2099 here with the most important question you've ever been asked or anyone has been asked about the character. Is the suit blue or black? Well, listen, I think it's blue. I think it's blue. Okay. (laughs) With the note that many things that are in blue in comics due to tradition are actually black, but I still think it's blue. If you had to have Uh, a character comment on his suit and say, that's a very nice blank suit. What color would you fill that with? No, I, I I do think it's blue and that's not to say I don't. And, and, and that's different than what I want. Like I probably actually want it to be black, but I do think it's blue. I think it's blue for the for the reason that you were probably nodding for mm-hmm. that for a long time black got colored blue uh, because it just was hard to show black in a four color printing era, but I also kind of like if it because if it is blue and red then it is both it you know it is a nod to Peter's costume, so I guess I do have to say I think it's blue actually. That was that was a tough question, Dan. That was very yeah tough. hard hitting hard hitting. <laughs> <laughs> But as I said, now do I, what color do I think it should be? That's different. That probably has a lot to do with like, I'm still angry we never got the Alex Ross movie Spider-Man costume from Wizard Magazine in like 1998, which by the way was black and red. So the, the, anyway. the only real follow-up that, that I should be asking you from that is like, why don't you allow yourself to be happy and, and just say <laughs> it's black? Like, uh, like what, what, what about you is keeping you from just saying it's black and moving on if you, if you really want that? Well, to be honest, because I'm not versed, in, I like, I'm not versed enough to know which of these questions is going to make me have to create new words to mute on social media to avoid people. <laughs> like, I'm 
So I'm just playing the odds here. Why, why would I, I you assume like... we had that big of a listenership on the show? <laughs> but um, okay, coming coming into writing 2099, uh, you were followed following up an attempted relaunch of the line that, like, in my estimation, seemingly rebooted the continuity and you know, uh, spearheaded by Nick Spencer and followed up in Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, when you came on to do Exodus, was there any discussion of continuing that reboot or was it quickly just determined that you guys would return to the regular continuity of 2099? Well, the real decision was not to play favorites. Well, I'll tell you that that is because when we looked at everything, it was the 30th anniversary Every comic is someone's favorite comic, you know, with a, with the possible exception of, I don't know, take your take your whipping boy comic that I could come. One up more with. day. Uh, <laughs> listen, no, I'm sure that was someone's favorite comic. They probably worked on I'm it. I'm just trying still. to save uh, you on the internet. Say you don't like that, and you will get a lot of support. Yeah. No, I actually, you know what? Hold on, there there's a real answer for this. I I recently discovered one of the most ill thought out comic titles ever so i will make fun of an actual comic that i discovered chaos comic published back in the day and it was called lynch mob so and this is real judgment was non-existent in many cases in the 90s so yeah like but you know what even that is probably some idiot's favorite book so (laughs) that being said yes so you had the i believe you're talking about nick spencer's stuff so you had that but you also had I mean, you had Marvel Knights 2099. You had Donnie's thing that he did with 2099. Of course, you had the original continuity. So one of the reasons for the 30th that we merged them all into Earth 2099 was so that if you squinted, everything happened. And, and that's the best way I can describe it because we didn't want to completely invalidate anyone's work and, 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 and someone probably loved that stuff. So to us, we took the Grant Morrison approach of it all happened. Maybe it didn't happen exactly as you remember. That's why I say if you squint, because obviously characters, I mean, the Punishers died like three times, but it all happened, you know, and it's all there. So that was really important to us. And it was important to us as well in a practical reason. Currently, like, like you know, Earth, Earth, what is it, 928 was the original one. You know, that is, they're all Earth 2099 now, but it's also because we wanted to finally not act as though every single book that's ever been published takes place in one year. Again, like it's been 30 years. So we created Earth 2099 where all these things were canon. And with the idea that much like the heroic age, that like 2099, Earth 2099, this is the, the new heroic age that began in 2099 with the emergence of Miguel O'Hara. So he's like the foundational character there. Um, but we also wanted, yes, to not have to somehow like say to squint really hard and say that 30 years of comics happened in exactly one year. Especially in an era when, like, technically, like, five years have passed in X-Men time. And I don't think that five years have passed in mainstream Marvel time. So it was easier and more elegant for us to merge them as a way to celebrate everything as opposed to just sort of, as I said, like, playing favorites, picking and choosing. Because nobody wants to hear that this thing they love doesn't, doesn't matter anymore. Instead, it all matters. So, so, so jumping off that dance question there, you know, with, with your approach to 2099... Uh, was it always intended, you know, editorially to focus on some of these team ups and events early on to kind of help rebuild this world, reintroduce 2099, who maybe hadn't been exposed to Nueva York the way you were back at the, you know, the spinner rack in 90 in the early 90s? I think so. Uh, but the, the, but I would note that's also always the job in the same way that every comic is someone's favorite comic. Like anything we do is always going to be someone's first book. So, yeah, like. It's always important for me. I, I have a, you know, I'm not perfect. Just ask comic book roundup. And uh, <laughs> one of those, one of those, the, the things, because I like, because I'm a person, if you want to talk about the comic section, comment section, because I'm a person who would read the Silmarillion over Lord of the Rings. I, I, I like a dry bit of jargon, right? But I, but I do uh, know that you really, that can become overwhelming. So like the approach was always, uh, to, yes, be not overly expository, but to be welcoming and to softly represent things or at least present them in a fresh way because, you know, we had this this kicking off the first thing. We had this 30th anniversary platform and the mandate, as you've seen since then, has been to build the world out. This is why we're doing so many new characters and things like that. And because it's fun to mash Miguel up against them, of course. Uh, but 
expansion, refreshing, that has been the mandate. And uh, it's been an exciting one, like I said. And there's even more coming, as you saw, coming this year. 2099 as the as the teaser as the teaser said uh there's so much that they tell you guys in that teaser it's stunning it's really a lot to go off of yeah we're gonna come back to that in a moment um but on the point you're making i have loved your approach to world building uh in this universe you know uh, the minute your exodus came out like the voice uh your voice felt very fresh on, on the book i love science fiction novels and a lot of the like world building felt like something from like a classic sci-fi novel that I can kind of get lost in. Um, and you've been doing a lot of things with like burning down the world, introducing zombies to like a huge part of the population, like erasing everybody's data and moon bases and things like that. Like I'm curious to hear more about your approach to world building and even that grand plan for remaking the world of 2099. And in that note, how, how do you decide how bold you are going with reshaping this universe? Well, okay. So first of all, thank you. Because if I've done one thing, it has been to try to expand the cyberpunk influences and literary influences, obviously through the punch in the face lens, because I'm still me, of, of 2099. I mean, the influence of things like Philip K. Dick and um, the, uh, the guy that wrote Neuromancer, William, William Gibson. Gibson. I was going to say, he, it just reads like that, in, especially in, in uh, your first miniseries. Well, thank you. It's, it's very well. And, and in a way that's because I would say it's very strong in the original source material. Like I was, I was saying how a lot of it was ahead of its time. When you go back and like, I didn't come up with the card system, for example, I didn't, and I didn't come up with the idea that black cards were above the law. That's been there since the nineties, but that is more prescient than ever. Right. So we wanted to sort of elevate those influences and also, like, add more, to be frank. I mean, for for the three people that noticed uh, they uh, in the in Exodus, I think it's Ghost Rider, but characters use the the street jargon from Blade Runner. Actually, I noticed. It's, I was one of those three. Like, <laughs> you know, which I which I've been hesitant to say because I don't even know if that's legal. But you know what? Fair use. Let's go. So we try to allude to. I mean, I'm a big fan of. Well, as as you had said, science fiction outside of comics as well as in comics. So I do want to try to expand what we're nodding to, you know, like the Dracula issue uh, that just came out. I was really happy with where we were able to put vampires uh, because, A, it's kind of a swerve. You know, you, you know, like you, it is there's a little bit of protopia to 2099's dystopia in that, you know, people, people, they did find a good solution to vampires. Yeah. Or at least a <laughs> but also to be clear, like, you know, I'm me and I can't, if I'm working at Marvel, I can't not get a planet of vampires when that was an Atlas comics book way, 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 way back in the day. So I really appreciate all that because I'm, you know, sometimes people have only read comics and that's great, but there's so much more out there. So we should all do it all. That being said, you you said something really good at the end. How do you sort of know how bold to go? And um, it's an ongoing question. The thing that I sometimes have to realize or remind myself of, because I was like, do we want to, like, for example, the Masters of Evil having like a spaceship and shit like that. But then at the same time, I sort of sat back and I was like, wait, people people have spaceships in the normal 616, like like, tw- like 2023. How about Black so, Widow I, having I, a giant gun that shoots at the moon? <laughs> That was that was my favorite well, touch. It's a light transport gun. Uh, it's uh, it's a pun. My favorite thing. But that's kind of but that's kind of what I realized. Like if anything, I think we have to. I think that we've kind of been girding our loins too much with like spec fiction and futuristic things set within the Marvel or DC universe. Because look at what is the look at what is the the baseline. In an Avengers book, it's totally normal for people to have like nanotechnology. They have teleporters. Why do we feel like it's weird? And by, by we, I mean me. Like, it, like why I had to do in, like a personal inventory of why I wasn't sure if a character could have a teleporter in 2099. Again, like they've had that shit since the 80s uh, in, in the present. So if anything, I think the challenge is, you know, so much of science fiction and so much of the tropes of speculative fiction as well are based on our real world. When actually, to do it in the Marvel universe, you have to adjust for the baseline of of that of that in story reality. And I think, if anything, we could go even wilder because of how much that is uh, sort of normal in day to day life in Marvel's present. Does that make sense? Because uh, it's also kind of like the challenge is like, oh well, how do you just like 
think about things that aren't possible. It's an ongoing challenge because we don't live there. So extrapolating is an ongoing challenge. It's the same as like when I was on Martian Manheim with Riley Rossmo, our sort of mandate for everything we did in culture building was, well, are we approaching this because it's what's right for Mars or are we approaching this because it's familiar to us as humans? But the catch 22, of course, is we are humans. So, so how do you not think like one when you're, when the equipment is, is standard issue human? I think it's similar with 2099. If anything, we need to go even bolder because we got to remember all the time what's normal for someone who works, you know, at a coffee shop in the Marvel universe and people teleporting in from Asgard or the future, that's all normal. So how much weirder would it really be? And what would the baseline be like 70 some odd years in the future? I actually think that we need to push it even further, if I'm being honest. I always think about that one random issue of Amazing Spider-Man where Peter is working at Horizon Labs and invents like the solution to cryo-freeze. And and it's like, that would be universe changing level. And here's a guy can't get a job. And he invented like... Like he would save Walt Disney's head, you know, like, uh, and, and, and we're just treating it like normal. And, and then we go into the future and they have flying cars and it's like, is that much more advanced than being able to freeze organic matter? I, I, I don't know. Well, that's a good point because that would be a good example of something we think is futuristic that is not because people have flying cars in shield right now. Well, right now, you know. So yeah, that's the challenge. It's a perfect example because we are kind of like Jetsons, flying cars, a little dot on your head that we don't know what it does. We already have most of that stuff. So it is, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think anything is too weird for 2099, but I do think you want to keep the feel to bring it back around. Like it can be, the baseline can be even bolder and stranger because of what's normal in present day Marvel, but I don't think you ever want it to look it still has to look and feel like 2099. It's still got to be dusty. It's got to be smoky. It's got to be neon, these cavernous cities. It, you don't, it can't become Coruscant. It can't become, you know, Earth, the Earth of Star Trek or something like that. In, in that regard, do you think, like, I think about Back to the Future all the time, and I know nobody ever wants that to be remade, but kind of what's interesting about Back to the Future is it's like a projection of how the 1980s sees the 1950s and sees the 2010s. So if you were to remake it now, it'd be, it'd be kind of interesting to see how we, uh, fan, you know, fantasize about the future or, or, or see doom about the future and, and have nostalgia about the past. Do you see 2099 as kind of like a, some way trapped in amber nineties vision of what 2099 would look like instead of like what 2023, vision of what the future would look like? I think the the impossible goal, honestly, is to make those Venn diagrams a circle, if you really want my answer. <laughs> yeah. And, and, if, and by the way, like, if we could do it, we would have solved nostalgia, right? It, like, so, so <laughs> no one can. But, but what I mean by that is you want, like, on some level, yes, the look, the feel, the way people talk, the fact that everybody says shock. It's great for getting things past S&P, but it does feel a little uh, of its time. But at the same, by the same token, if something is in amber too long, the, the, the audience will just dwindle because that audience only lasts as long as people who have nostalgia for it are, are within the consumer base. So that's what I mean. You kind of want to press them together. You need it to feel like it does for the diehard people and also to respect the, the core creative of the line. But then also you got to sort of somehow, somehow find a way to serve that to new people. Um, I think that's what we're always trying to do. And that is, I think one of the reasons like, yes, we're keeping the, the big influences of 2099, but we are expanding them. We are sort of build, building it out. We're doing books with different flavors. I hope, I have yet to figure out how to do like my 2099 version of Event Horizon, but stay tuned. In the ones, in the in the stuff that they teased, which I can't really talk a lot about, but I'll see what you ask me. Like, I can speak obliquely about the influences of the books because I'm a weirdo. But, you know, like in one of them, we got to do what is the 2099 version of like a Christopher Marlowe Faust story or like a Goethe Faust story. So like we are want to expand the types of things we tell with the lens but the lens is still the lens. Otherwise, you know, what separates 2099 from like the Wasteland universe, whatever, or like like AU or whatever that's called or so on and so forth. So it, it is it is the constant struggle we're all trying to do. But hopefully, as I've said, you know, we are doing it well with 2099. Obviously, like like if I wrote and if we presented the line exactly the same as, as you would get it like under Peter and Rick, Things would never grow. So I, you know, like my hope is that what we do 
honors all that stuff. And that goes for that goes for Peter and Rick. That goes for Ron and John Francis. It goes for everyone who created these characters. But we also have to evolve it. So hopefully it this work rhymes with that work. But if I was writing the exact same sort of world and voice for Miguel as Peter, well, that's what he's there for, right? So we have to offer new things. And by the way, we are getting Peter back as well. I've read all. I've read the entire miniseries in March uh, for Symbiote Spider-Man 2099. So we're getting, we're covering all bases. We're covering all flavors. I, I, there was something you you alluded to, you, you know, the the Marlowe story, and I, I I wanted to ask you kind of more broadly, you know, something that that we have talked about and really appreciate in you, in is how you have managed within these these minis and events to really effectively tell done in one stories uh, within, within these arcs. I, I want you to talk about what I consider is the lost art of the single issue story. Cause we, we, <laughs> we just don't get these anymore. And I, I love them. I, you know, I wish other media would do more of the single issue or the single episode stories. So, so what, S- what same is with you- your Scarlet witch too? Yeah. 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 So, so, so what, I mean, is it, do you consider this a lost art and, and why, why are you able to do it? <laughs> well, I can't, well, I can't, well, I can't say it's a lost art now because if I'm the only one that is able to do it, because then I just sound like a, a big old chode. I can't lie to you. Um, but I think that it is a cl- more classic, you know, like we're talking about, when I was picking up books in the eighties and nineties and, and the fact that every book is someone's first book, the goal is, yeah, like, like it's not that in in the things you brought up, we did set out to do done in ones for a variety of reasons, but in a thing like Scarlet Witch, especially it is like, we wanted that. Yes. We kind of don't do it anymore, but that's because uh, of any number of reasons, but we wanted to, we wanted to not just do something that's sort of classic but for the reason it was successful when it was classic, as you said, like you get a full story, you know everything you need to know about the character. Hopefully there's a tease for more, which we always try to do a little bit as well. You want more, but you don't uh, you don't want to sell something that's incomplete. And I think, you know, things go in phases. Um, when I was first buying comics, this was kind of the norm, 80s, early 90s, especially if I was buying back issues from the 70s and things like that. Then we realized, holy shit, decompression, late 90s an issue of someone drinking a soda for $5. This is amazing. I think that has become kind of the expectation now. And the minute something becomes the expectation, you have to buck the expectation. So with Scarlet Witch, it was, we were reestablishing Wanda in sort of a new page one for her. We wanted it to be as welcoming as possible. And with 2099, there've been a lot of different reasons that we've done one shots. I do think it's, it's nice to be able to give that complete package to people, especially as books become more expensive. As to why am I, why do I do it? Like, is it a lost art? It's a different muscle and, and it's hard, you know, like, cause here's the thing. Uh, when, when people ask me about breaking in and ask me about writing, sometimes people get sort of down that the, you're often your first work as a creator is only like eight pages or six pages. And, and that's true. You know, the first things I did were eight page stories at image. And then there were eight page stories at DC and vertigo and things like that. But the point is, is that it's actually the reverse. And I tell people this on the breaking into comics panels and things like that. It's much harder to tell a complete story in six or eight pages than it is even in 20. So by that token as well, if we're used to doing two-parters, three-parters, four-issue arcs, so on and so forth, you have to sort of buckle down and and be more utilitarian and efficient and creative with your space to do a full story in one issue. But at the same time, and it is harder, uh, you know, as I said, there's, there, there's, less, there's less fat to trim. But the payoff, again, folks get complete stories. They feel welcomed in. And the thing I said else, uh, otherwise is not a joke. Like these books are getting more expensive all the time. And I do really feel like folks deserve as much as possible in every single issue. Oh, yeah. So appreciate that. Uh, so not only are you delivering the goods, but you've been working with some incredible artists. Like I, I have a piece from Justin Mason on my wall here uh, from before he was even working in uh, uh, professional comics. Uh, and it's uh, one of my favorites. So to see him team up with you to deliver one of the most horrifying visions of carnage I, I've, I've ever seen was really exciting. Um, and then your work with Dev Malia uh, on, um, on that first issue of the Miguel O'Hara with the zombies was 
just a visual stunner like that that might be my book of the year already between both of your work what what's your ca- collaboration style like with artists you've worked with so many on, on these various uh, mini series you know do you change it up with each of them do you have a particular way you like to work and do you have any highlights from the time working with these names the thing is is that you always do want to change it up and you want but you want to change it up according to the, uh, what is going to be most exciting and best for your collaborator. So it's not like I sit down to a book and I'm like, they am only writing an iambic pentameter. And you're like, no, like you should, you should um, say that, you know, like now my scripts will be bulleted lists. No, like, no, that, but, but when you do is when you start a new book, you, you, you talk to, if you, if you have time, which is some, sometimes not always a luxury, you have that conversation, you see what type of uh, script style, what type of things they want in a script. Some folks want very little and they want to they want to put a lot in like uh, of, from their own sort of inspiration. Some folks want the opposite because deadlines are tight and they want to know exactly what's got to be there. They want to hit it and they want to move on. So in a perfect world, like you are you are switching up not necessarily your script format, but what you put in it, how you deliver it. Uh, based on a con- that that conversation, when that isn't always the case, because things are on a tight deadline, yeah, you want to use. I try to use a style that is relatively open, and also make sure that the folks I'm working with know that like these books are conversations. I at least am not a person who considers myself in charge of a story. I do consider myself the first you know person holding the baton, but like we're a team. And that does mean sometimes leaving things open to interpretation and giving your collaborators room to work. So at minimum, you know, I you take a look at someone's work and you give them room. You try to not overcrowd the page. These are all really tactical answers, but you want to give them room to do what they're going to do best and know that it might not be exactly what you're imagining. But that to me is the risk and amazing reward of being in a collaborative medium. If I wanted complete control, I would be writing novels. I try to, yes, like treat my, the people that I'm working with as true peers, as true teammates and, and give them room to do what they do best. And, you know, I think it shows through as, as you brought up Dev Malia, it's probably one of my favorite books I've done in this series. And as you had said, like it came back as a surprise, you know, I don't like, I don't do a lot of layout description, for example, uh, because it's not that that isn't something that writers can do and some do it. But to me, if I didn't trust like the person I'm working with to do what they do best, what am I here? So that's a good example. Like I might write a five panel page, but unless something is vastly important, how that, you know, the size of those panels, how it comes out, I try to leave that up to folks. Stuff with Dev Malia, I, I could never have predicted the way he was going to tell that story. He was perfect for that. It's one of my favorite, like I said, one of my favorites, along with the X-Men issue from Exodus. Uh, that's probably the only one that's ahead of it. Kim Jacinto, I, I was just like, my face was melting when I saw those pages and those designs. So, and I would work with them again in a second. But in both cases, yeah, in, in all of them, like the artist is your first audience as a writer. So I think you want to give them room to shine. And also, to be frank, you want to make sure that the book you're doing is exciting to them. That comes through, hopefully, in the pages uh, from folks that I work with. If you can't have that conversation, sometimes what's exciting to an artist is going to surprise you. Like, rest in peace, but Steve Dillon relatively famously really liked doing Talking Heads, you know, which is the converse of most artists, right? So those conversations can be fun. But listen, if you keep them excited, you give them room to work. I think that's what always makes the best work come back to you and then, you know, go out to print to you folks. Marvel's been experimenting a lot with doing these like short-term minis that are then being considered part of longer runs. Like for example, you wrote what was the hundredth legacy issue of Spider-Man 2099 as part of your latest mini series. Are you able to speak to this approach for the publishing line? And you know, does it change anything for you as a creator to work like within miniseries to miniseries versus a sustained run of, of a title? I think it's reflective of the way, you know, the way publishers see the buying audience, right? Like publishers do what, well, gets the best return and reaction from their customers, which is retailers and and readers. I think they see that if we do like, like if we do an ongoing Miguel book, that if, if we do issue one to five, issue six to 10 issue and so on and so forth, the same story in those right now, for better or worse, is going to sell better if it's released as issue one to five, issue one to five, issue one to five, rather than three arcs. That's, again, for, for better or worse, regardless of where you stand on it, 
currently that is a fact. And as long as that is going to be a fact, um, as long as that's what the the buying habits as of the mass ba- of the mass customer base are showing publishers, that's what's going to happen because they obviously want to make as much of a return as possible on these books so that we can keep making them. I think that's the best way to talk about that because it's not like, you know, we don't sit in the lab and be like, what will torture people who are collecting? Um, um, what counts? I, and, and for that note, I'm very, you'll never hear me say anything else. Like, I wish things were legacy numbered. At minimum, I wish you got both. I would love if things had an arc number and and the legacy numbering. So and I and I'm not shy about that. I would because my first book was a random issue as I said at the top of this interview. Like to me that's always been part of the joy. But so so there's that. Um and then as to well as to us it's just different. I I it's hard to develop subplots and and things when you only have set arcs. It's not better or worse, it's just different, you know, like doing these things, doing series of of minis that are one to six issues long, four to six issues long, pardon me. That's like appointment TV storytelling, right? Like when you when you see a six episode series or a 13 episode prestige series or whatever, like character arcs are drawn in a certain way, events happen in a certain way. And that's what you're doing there. What you don't see are these long simmering uh, subplots like you get in in network shows that I, I hate that I'm using this metaphor, but it does work like net net network shows that run like 22 episodes per season. So it's not that it's better or worse, but it is different. How you deliver the story is different. And, and there are things you that you struggle to do if you're doing an event book, you know, like I would love to dig more into Miguel's relationship with Conchata. I would love to dig more into his, his previous and supporting cast outside of Spider-Woman who we created, but that's not the type of thing that happens when you are having to do an event book. Like, and, and by which I mean like the big classic blow up, like you got with Exodus or dark Genesis, which is basically maximum carnage 2099. Look at the look at the things we're homaging. People are in costume almost the entire time. It changes the type of ways you deliver story. It changes the types of stories you tell. We all sort of long for at least like you know a, a two year run on something so we can have longer longer simmering things. But you know when it happens, it happens. And we've been very lucky to do as much twenty ninety nine as we've we have done. And we've been really lucky on Scarlet Witch as well to. By the time everything that we're doing is done, at minimum, I think we'll have the longest run, actually. I think we'll have the lo- longer than the 18 that we got in the 2018 series. I would love, I wish, I would love to have the legacy numbering. I would love to have that all there because, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what that's what books were like when I was younger. It's funny to think about, you know, in our lifetime, we went from Crisis on Infinite Earths. How could we ever do a new number one ever, <laughs> right? <laughs> What will we do? And now it's just like, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's ambush bug, you know, volume 17 and number three. (laughs) So anyway, I, uh, we could spend a whole podcast just unpacking why that is and what changes in the industry have led to, to that being, uh, uh, such as it is. So in that we ended this mini series, uh, this past week and in the back of that issue, number five it, senior editor Mark Panicia, he announced more 2099 coming this summer, and that was the extent of it. Just a big 2099. I, you've already said there's not much you can say about it. I, I, I guess I would ask first and foremost, are you involved in these plans because your name wasn't included? And then is this more of what we've been getting? Is it an extended run that you could say you're doing? I mean, can you tell us anything about what that might be or even the ballpark of what we should be thinking about that could be? Yeah, they really didn't give me much to riff on here, did they? Is Although it in outer is space? <laughs> it's, it's a background with stars and that letters. Is 2099 in the title? Are we getting Warlock 2099? I did say, <laughs> well, I, I, I did say that there's a visual clue on that ad and there's not much on that ad, I guess is all I would say to uh, your comment there. And as to my involvement, I could only say I seem to have knowledge. Don't I? <laughs> uh, fascinating. So. Fascinating. But I will say that, like, I don't want to skip over. So so that's all I can really say. Although I, I would happily answer random yes or no questions. You know, I don't want to skip over the fact that what Roger and Peter are doing in March is is also everybody should check it out and and is going to be like a great. I mean, 
as we push 2099 forward, it feels like a lost run from like the, the, the kickoff era in the 90s. It's a great book. So folks should definitely check that out too. Before whatever's happening with the 2099 in a star field in 2024 arrives. That you seem to know something about. And, and I, I do want to note, like Disney has the, the rights to Star Wars. So like I'm really hoping for that Star Wars 2099 crossover book. That, uh, <laughs> you've written both so you're the perfect guy yeah I mean I've also written Power Rangers <sighs> well it's not it's not Star Wars crossover <laughs> that's the yes or no that I wanted the answer there to we go. it seems there like we go. got it yeah. All right. But be- be- before we completely uh, torture you, Steve, we, we-, we want to end our interview with a-, a question or I guess a variation of a question we ask all of our guests on this show, which is what has it meant to you personally to write a character like Miguel O'Hara and to add to his mythology? Writing a character that was influential to you when you were younger is always, always a really great moment. Like I, I, Obviously, like this is a job, so you and a part of our job is 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 finding out why a character is amazing, you know, regardless of if you know them or not. When you when you step onto a book, research is part of the job. With things like, I mean, well, things like things like Midnighter, you know, like working on a character that again was just so foundational to me. Working on characters which are like Miguel, which are like Cerebra, like the launch characters from from twenty ninety nine. It's surreal. You know, uh, and, and I, I tell the story in other podcasts, but 2099 specifically for me is surreal because of what we've already talked about, that I was an issue one, day one reader for Miguel and for the X-Men. Um, but what I often say that I haven't yet is that, I mean, I've been trying to break into comics. I was trying for a long time. And in fact, I was already trying to uh, in 2002, which was the 10th anniversary. And at that time, I was, you know, Grant was on... X-Men with with Frank and uh, Casey and Ian Churchill were on Uncanny. And I was just like, oh, I love X-Men, but I can't pitch something. Like, what could I possibly pitch in the present that was that, that wouldn't step on what these two amazing writers are doing? But you know what they're not doing is 2099. So I pitched. I have somewhere on like probably a hard disc, I have a, uh, a, a 10th anniversary 2099 pitch for X-Men that I, that I sent into some very patient editors at Marvel. So it's not just surreal because I'm working on Miguel, but I'm actually doing like I did the 30th anniversary of a thing that I like shot my shot at when I was a teenager, like, like desperate, hoping that I would someday get in. So it's extra surreal. And with Miguel specifically... It's been fun to explore the ways he's like Peter. It's fun to the, explore the ways he isn't. He's a little meaner. He's a little more like me. And it's not just that. I mean, I I mean, I get to, you know, in the same way that we talked about Somnus, I get to put things into his character and speak to aspects of his culture that, yes, involve a lot of research, but also honor some of the people that are closest to me in my life, you know, that to whom Miguel is a huge hero and, and has been since they were kids. So, I mean, I'm proud to do it. I, I, I love the character and, you know, it, it'll continue to be a privilege for as long as they have me on board, which, you know, may or may not be in 2024, later in 2024. Speculation aside, everybody, <laughs> speculate on. Uh, that seems to be an interesting topic for conversation. Anyway, Steve, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We're a big fan of all you're doing in 2099 and hope you will continue to do in 2099 whether you choose to believe what you're saying or not. So thanks again for, for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. And we'll let you know when it drops and you can, you can do, do with it, do with that information as you choose. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Steve. Well, that was incredibly fun, Dan. You know, it was funny before we, we got on the air here, you described uh, Steve to me as like, I, he, he strikes me as a writer's writer. And and he was very much that and so much more. Uh, I think he hit the, spe- the sweet spot for both of us in terms of his general style. So I, I mean, just he referenced William Gibson and that made him a winner in my book. There I'm you go. a huge fan. There so you there you go. So I hope everyone enjoyed that as much as we did talking to him. But alas, it is that time, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers for tuning into this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. And of course, an extra special thanks to Steve Orlando for coming to talk to us about all of his 2099 work and then some. 
Yeah, this podcast exists because of listener support on Patreon. For only $3.99 a month, you can help support our show's existence while getting early episodes, including these reviews the same week the comics release, exclusive artwork, and a ton of other bonuses. So thank you to everyone who already supports us and the work that we do. Dan and I really want to increase all of the awesome work that we do in 2024, including more interviews with modern creators. So if you are already a patron or want to become one, please help us meet our goals and make this a better podcast by considering supporting our show. Just go to AmazingSpiderTalk.com and click on the big Patreon button to get started. Yeah, this podcast was edited by Rick Coast. The video version of the show is available on YouTube and was edited by Alex Galucki. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friend, Sal Buscema, and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge. And our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton. So, Mark, until we load ourselves into a giant gun and fire it at the moon so we can invade the crypt of an Egyptian god, what's our motto? What the shock? With great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.